Kiwi late. It's going to be close here. Kiwi's going to beat them all with a mighty run. Piping Lane races up the Manjapeak, takes the lead in the cup. Out wide is Guns in Stormy Seas, but Piping Lane's going to win the cup. But it's Doremus nicely clear in the Melbourne Cup. He's got the cup one. He's holding nothing like a Dane, and Doremus wins the cup. Rain Lover and Alsop, they're going head and head. Rain Lover on the inside. Rain Lover's got his neck in front and won by a neck. Champagne and Jezebel. Champagne, Jezebel fighting back. Jezebel, Champagne, they hit the line. Jezebel wins the cup from Champagne. But a champion becomes a legend. Celebrating Australia's greatest race, the history of the Melbourne Cup. Pelion coming from the cloud from the outside, rising fast is too far in front, however, and in the run of the boat, rising fast, going to win the Melbourne Cup by two legs from Helion. Right fingers goes to Zima, they hit the line locked together. Dead eight! A dead eight in the Melbourne Cup, Zima and Light Fingers. Rain Lover's eight lengths in front, going further away, and Rain Lover wins the Melbourne Cup by ten lengths. Here's Brian Martin. In 1895, the famous American writer Mark Twain arrived in Melbourne prior to the Melbourne Cup. He attended Flemington to see the outsider Araria, a three-year-old filly at 33 to 1, beat the favourite Hover in the Cup. The race was only 34 years old, and 85,000 gathered at Flemington for the great race. In his book, Following the Equator, Twain wrote of his visit, quote, Nowhere in the world have I encountered a festival of people that has such a magnificent appeal to the whole nation. The Melbourne Cup astonishes me horse race that is rich in our culture, from the battlers to the rich Arabs of Dubai, from the Irish and the English, they come for the great race. Welcome to the history of the Melbourne Cup. Great to come back to South Australia and catch up with a guy who's an absolute icon in Australian racing. He's won the Melbourne Cup on two occasions on Piping Lane and Beldale Ball. And even after life, after riding in races and riding in 11 Melbourne Cups, riding thousands of winners, being a member of the Australian Racing Hall of Fame, he found another vocation, staying in racing, and that was doing the interviews, post-race interviews, for many, many years on a horse called Banjo. And it's JL Letsy. Johnny, great to catch up with you. Yes, wonderful, Brian, to see you again. And, uh, of course, you started your career here, and uh, we've been mates for a long, long time. Yeah, 1970, I came over here to start out as a race caller. I met you in the car park at the Morfordville Trials, and you uh, you gave me a bit of cheek there, and uh, nothing's changed. Yeah, well, Brian, in 1970, before, before I won the Melbourne Cup, I actually lived in the car park. So that's why you met me there. <laughs> Two years later, I shifted into a motel. How are you travelling? How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing good. Uh, had a few little, as everybody does, everybody gets health issues, and um, they're behind us now, but at the moment, everything is 100%. Good man, and of course, uh, like myself and a few others um, that have spent basically a lifetime in racing, you're a Melbourne Cup ambassador, and I don't know about you, but uh, this is one of the, the best jobs ever. It's a great job, Brian, because it's 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 something that we do that we love, and it's um, I've often said to Joe McGrath, the, the boss, the keeper of the cup, I've often said to Joe, you know, it's easy to sell our product because we love it. Um, if I was a shoe salesman, I don't think I could do the trips uh, that we do and where we go. But uh, something that you love and something that made a difference to your life is, uh, is the, uh, the Melbourne Cup, the Lexus Melbourne Cup, and uh, just makes you so proud to go out and see people. People just, we take it to them because we know they can't come to it. So that's our main object. I keep telling people um, when they ask about uh, touring with the, the Lexus Melbourne Cup, 
it's the magnetism of, of the trophy and people holding the trophy. You can go to aged care centres and people in their 90s or or infants or uh, school kids or, you know, to the uh, the kindergartens. But there's something about this trophy, and it's a little bit hard to describe the uh, the appeal that it has to everyday Australians, but uh, now globally. Well, Brian, it's it's got international, as we said, and, you know, at... at the, the start of the horses coming in here, the international horses, there was a bit of, not an uprising, I wouldn't say, but um, they weren't that welcome until they, when they weren't winning. But when they started to win, uh, we're thinking they're taking our cup away. But they weren't actually taking our cup away because all they were doing, they were advertising it around the world because, uh, I mean, Dermot World was the first in 93 with Vinnie's crop. He, he took it back to Ireland and they would never have heard or seen the Melbourne Cup. Uh, except for when Dermot came over, and then it's gone to Japan, and it's gone to so many places, France, England. It's 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 a worldwide sporting uh, trophy. Uh, it's the only one in the world, I think, that uh, it'll gold one that travels before it's won. We don't know who's won it, and it travels around the world. And as you know, this year we had 39 cities and we had uh, six countries. I mean, even if it's soccer, Brian, or football, or whatever, uh it doesn't get the coverage that racing does around the world. I mean, racing is worldwide. I mean, we might have uh, Australian rules football, but it's Australian. It's Australian rules. But the Melbourne Cup, well, well, you know, you look at the Lexus Melbourne Cup and it just goes the world and everybody knows it. Let's talk about um, your involvement with the great race and the Melbourne Cup. And we can sort of track back to 1968. Uh, you're only a young guy, but you, you won the Adelaide Cup here in your hometown on a, on a wonderful three-year-old who'd go on to do great things uh, and win the Cup twice, and that was Rain Lover. Brian, he was a great horse. Um, you know, through a little bit of, uh, what can I say, a little bit of silliness on my behalf that he, he was lucky to go on and race into the to the Melbourne Cup because I can I can remember as a, as a three-year-old, I'd won a few races on him, and Bobby Cox and myself were, you know, fierce competitors here when Bob was riding, and, and I can remember one day at Cheltenham when I, I had Bob Cox... Uh, inside of me in a pocket and I was on Rain Lover outside of him and, and it, we were riding for the same stable, you know, a little bit of competition there and got a little bit of a tangle up going about the 600 metres and the horse alongside him, I think the horse's name was Kembla, he put his foot nearly through Rain Lover's tendon on the near side front mm. and he came in after the race and the, and, and the skin had dropped the flap and I thought, oh, my stupidity has done this. But it, it was a, a flesh wound. Uh, he came back and, of course... Uh, he won the uh, he won the Adelaide Cup in '68 as a three-year-old beat Devil Boy and Arctic Coast horses from the Bart Cummings stable that were very very well-performed horses and and Graham Hegney said he'd won the Melbourne Cup a couple of years earlier with uh, Gadam Gadam and he said I, I think we've got something here and I said I'm pretty sure he has he had seven stones three I think I rode him at Graham said I think we've got something here and when I came in he said something which I'll never forget he said you know he said um, You've got to ride in the Melbourne Cup this year. I said, wow. And I said, I'm on a live, live chance. You know, and he said, and you'll win it. And I thought, well, Graham knew what he was talking about. Tobin Bronze, you know, those good horses that Graham had, and he didn't make statements. Um, he said, uh, you'll ride him in the Melbourne Cup. He said, and you'll win on him, son. If you're an Adelaide jockey, you'd love to win an Adelaide Cup, your hometown cup. If you're a Sydney jockey, you'd love to win a Sydney Cup. If you're a Melbourne jockey, you'd like to win a Melbourne Cup. I wanted to win an Adelaide Cup, and when I'd done that, that was my ambition. What's next? The Melbourne Cup. And here I am, going into the race on a live chance. Well, as you know, a couple of months later, Graham was, went to America with Tobin, went over there, and uh, he, he wasn't in the best of health, Graham, at that time. And 
and I lost the ride on him in the Melbourne Cup. Jimmy Johnson rode him, he went to Mick Ravens. Jimmy rode him, and Jimmy was my mentor, always has been, still a great friend. At 90 years of age, Jimmy's still one of my best mates, and he helped me so much in my career. And You know, a lot of jockeys would be disappointed. I, I was disappointed, but I wasn't disappointed because my great mate had won it on him. If someone else had ridden him, I would have thought, not as good. But JJ and won it. I was happy for Jimmy. I was happy for the horse. Great horse. And he went on to win it again a year later. And Brian, there's always a lot of debate over the, the greatest race we've ever seen. I don't know what yours is, but the greatest race that I ever did see in my life was, I don't think anyone else would have won on him, was the second year he won his Melbourne Cup was him and Allsop. Went the length of the straight at Flemington. Uh, one had uh, 48 kilos and one had, uh, or well, seven stone eight. And um, Rain Lover, Rain Lover had nine stone eight. Half head for three furlongs. That was the greatest race I've ever seen. Over two miles. He was an outstanding champion stayer. Uh, you talk about 68 when he was four and he came to Melbourne. Rain Lover for that first cup and he won by eight lengths and he had the race won probably 800 metres from home. What about you? You came to Melbourne. Uh, you'd never been to Flemington in 1972. You'd been riding in Melbourne. Um, I was back calling races uh, in 72 and you came over. And all of a sudden, you looked as though you are a live chance of getting a ride on a horse called Piping Lane in the 72 Cup. Tell us how that came about. Well, in 68, when, when Rain Lover won it, when I didn't get the ride in the Melbourne Cup and I lost it through those circumstances, I thought, well, there's... You know, you get sometimes you get one opportunity in your life, and and if you don't, if you don't take it, I took it, but um, it it didn't work out that, that that I could full you know go on and ride him in the Melbourne Cup, and I thought, oh well, that's that's me for a Melbourne Cup. I, now my thoughts on the Melbourne Cup were, I just have love to have a ride in it, just to feel see what it's like to you know sit at the top of the straight at Flemington first Tuesday in November. 24 of the best jockeys, horses, trainers in the world and some of the richest owners. It's a worldwide coverage. Uh, I'd just love to sit in the barrier stalls, 24 of them, before they go and just see what it feels like. I'd ridden in front of 30,000. That was the year that Tullock was here and that was my biggest crowd that I'd ever ridden in front of. And I never dreamed of it, but six days before the race, I was going to the Gawler races and I'll never forget it. I just walked out the door and... And a lot of jockeys will tell you this, that uh, when you ride Wednesdays and Saturdays like you do in Adelaide, your phone rings a lot on those days because it's someone who wants a winner. But the rest of the week, the phone's pretty quiet. The phone rang and I thought, no, nah, it'll be someone wants it. I'll go back in. And so anyway, I walked walk back in the house and, and I said, hello. And they said, hello. They said, is that John Letts? And I said, yes. And they said, uh, have you got a ride in the Melbourne Cup next Tuesday? And I thought, now, I'll recognise this voice in a moment. It'll be one of my mates that got out last night. And he's on his way home now, and he's had a few drinks, and he's trying to be smart. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I haven't. And, and I was unknown in Victoria and anywhere in Australia. I was, only, I was a South Australian jockey at the time. And, and I said, uh, well, as a matter of fact, I said, I haven't taken a ride yet. I said, but I said, I'm waiting on Bart Cummings or Tommy Smith or Colin Hayes to ring me. But I knew that wasn't going to happen. Uh, and then the guy said, oh, well, we got a horse called um, Piping Lane, trained by George Hanlon, and would you like you to ride him in the Melbourne Cup next week? And straight away I thought, this is my chance. I've got to ride in the Melbourne Cup. And I said, yes. I said, I'll definitely ride him. I'll be there. What weight? They said 48 kilos. Well, I had to do it pretty hard to get the 48. But I, I knew even if I had to cut a leg off, Brian, I would have I would have done that to ride in the Cup, you know. 
might have been the only one-legged jockey to ever ride in it. But, you know, it was something that every jockey wants to do. And I, and I didn't want to miss it. And, of course, the lead-up into the race for a jockey is I'd never heard of the horse. I'd heard of George Hanlon, never met the owners. And every everything went wrong for me before the race, actually, because I got to... I went up on a show here on a Saturday night with Barry Ian on a tonight show, Saturday night show, and he, he said, John, you've got to ride in the Melbourne Cup next year. So I said, yes, Barry. He said, and because in Adelaide, for an Adelaide jockey to get a ride in a Melbourne Cup was a big deal. And he said, you got to ride in the... I said, yes. He said, you, you know everything. And this was when I... And he said, the, the gentleman told me that, that rang me, said his name's Piping Lane, and he's from Tasmania, and he's now with George Hanlon. And he said, you know every, anything about the horse? I said, I know everything about him. He said... Uh, I said, I know what weight he carried last start, where he ran, who rode him, the type of tracks he likes, and what barrier he drew last start, and the distance he's won over. And then he asked me a hard question. He said, uh, what's his name? And I said, um, Palace Lane? He said, you mean Piping Lane? I said, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> so nothing was going right, Brian. You know, <laughs> It was incredible because... I went to Melbourne, and, and, you know, when you go to Melbourne for the Melbourne Cup week, and, I mean, there there are other race clubs that will always try to compete with the Melbourne Cup, but they'll never get any because it's got so much history. Uh, it's it's an institution in Australian racing, and this is what every everyone around the world knows now. Uh, but I went to Melbourne, and, of course, I stayed at a motel, and um, I thought I'd go over Sunday and I'll walk the track on Monday. Uh, but I slept in. Uh, so I didn't see it. So I thought I'd better go Tuesday morning and have a look at the track because I'm riding there in the afternoon. Anyway, I slept in again. So I went downstairs at about 10 o'clock or 9.30, 10, and I said to the young girl at the motel, uh, could you get me a taxi to Flemington, please? She said, um, uh, you won't get a cab today. She said, because they're all booked. And I said, well, I've got to get out to Flemington today. Anyway, lucky for me, my brother Wayne was over there playing golf. And I thought I, if I can catch him before he goes to golf, because then, you know, with the mobile, it's not there. And I rang him and I said, Wayne, look, I've got a ride in the Melbourne Cup today. He said, yeah, I've seen that. And I said, um, could you get me to Flemington? He said, yeah, I'll pick you up. So anyway, he drove around and picked me up at the motel and we took off. Now, I didn't realise what it was going to be like to go to Flemington on Melbourne Cup day. But, you know, you drive into the member's gate and it's like a horseshoe and, and, and you pull up, the cabs pull up, the, the, the passengers get out. And they drive on, go back to get another fare. So that's okay. So I said to Wayne, well, drop me at the member's gate, will you? Because in Adelaide, being the leading jockey here, you walk in the member's gate, you didn't even have to show your pass. They just, the guys on the gate would say, you got a good ride, let's see. I'd say, yeah, this has got a chance or whatever. And you just walk in. I got over there, it's a bit different. Uh, I went to walk in the gate, and you know those guys that wear a white coat on the one day of the year with a sheriff's badge? All of a sudden, a lot of authority, them guys. And I walked in, and I was, I was the size of a of a midget, race bag on one hand and, and a saddle on the other hand. And I got out of the car, and I walked in the members, and I was just going through. And this um, this guy came up, and he said, uh, where are you going? And this is the guy in the white coat. I said, in here. He said, what for? And I thought, well, what would a guy the size of a midget be walking into Flemington on Melbourne Cup Day with a saddle on one arm and a bag of race gear on the other be doing here? I said, uh, well, I'm just going in here. He said... Uh, well, you can't go in there. He said, uh, what, do you want to, what are you doing in there? I said, I'm the plumber. And he said, well, the plumbers use that gate down there. So I had to go down and walk through the horse gate. And then, of course, you walk in, and I walked into the jockey's room, and something like a guy playing his first grand final walks out on the MCG. 
And I walked in there and there was, you know, Mitch Didham, Roy Higgins, Harry White, Bobby Skelton, Brian, Brian Andrews, all of those, all of the champs were there. Pat Hyland was there and everybody was there and, and then there was me. And I thought, what am I doing here? We get ready for the race and go out and I'll never forget this because when I walked out, I thought, well, a trainer will come and give me instructions and I'll meet the owner. And I went out and George Hanlon had, I think, four runners in the race or something and he never spoke to me. I never met the owner before the race. I never had any instructions and I'd never seen the horse before. But as I walked out, and you know, as you walk out to get on the horse, they said, get me on the jockeys. And I walked out and there was number 16, I'll never forget it. And that's all I ever see of pipe, ever seen of Piping Lane was the side that I got on, the back of his ears and his mane. I never got to pat him. I never got to thank him. And when I was getting legged up, the young girl legged me up because I hadn't met the owners or the connections, or George. This is Trevor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the mountain yard, and this young girl said, uh, I said, how do you ride this horse? Front, back, in the middle, or whatever? She says, um, I don't know, but you better ride him properly. And, well, that was, you know, riding properly. I didn't know anything about him. And, you know, honestly, Brian, I really feel that that was the reason that I won the Melbourne Cup. I didn't have any instructions to ride to. Everything fell into place, which does happen in Melbourne Cups, and I wasn't looking to put myself where the trainer wanted me. I just went out and had a relaxed ride. I went down to the barrier. Uh, everyone that went out on the track, every horse except number 16 got a clap. I was the only one they didn't know. No one sort of gave us 80 to 1 chance, but that doesn't matter in a Melbourne Cup because they can win at any odds. But I went out on the track. No one knew me, but you know the VRC, they worked miracles in, in those days. They still do. Three and a half minutes later, I came in, and everyone in Melbourne knew me. And I had none of my parents or kids or anything had gone to the races. And I came in, and everyone in Melbourne knew me. And I had that many mothers and fathers and uncles and aunties and down by the rail where I went out. I never knew anyone. It was like when I went out there, it was like going through the Sahara Desert and coming back. It was like walking through Times Square in New York. Let's go back, turn the clock back to the first metric Melbourne Cup in 1972. A field of 24, uh, the favourite uh, was Gunsind and Magnifique from New Zealand. Roy Higgins on the great Gunsind. And here's Letsy, 48 kilos. And let's listen to this magnificent win. His first time around Flemington, the Melbourne Cup. Piping Lane getting a split. Piping Lane races up to Magnifique, takes the lead in the cup. Out wide is Gunsind, Stormy Seas, but Piping Lane's going to win the cup. A length and a quarter to Magnifique. Very close for third. Double Irish or Gunsind. Well, there's the call from Bill Collins, and uh, Piping Lane kept going to win the race. Did you know much about. Um, well, you knew Gunsind. It was a champion horse at the time, the grey. That's what, the only what, reason I knew him, because yeah. he was grey. <laughs> what plan, did you have any plan in your head by the time he got to the barrier? Well, Brian, I, I actually spoke to Harry White, and Harry, as you know, and you've known Harry for so many years, uh, Harry's one of the most laid-back, relaxed jockeys that I've ever ridden against, and one of the greatest. I said to Harry before the race, I said, Harry, um, how do you ride Flemington? He said, haven't you been here before? I said, no. He said, well, he said, what I do, he said, what I usually do, he said, I'd go to sleep for the first mile and a half. He said, when you get to the half mile, he said, that's when we get interested. We really get interested then. He said, it gets a bit difficult after the half mile. Chiquita Lodge, he said, that's where we make our run, start to get into the race. And I thought, well, that's all right. And I walked away and I thought, Chiquita Lodge. Mm. I thought, Chiquita Lodge, well, to me, Chiquita Lodge I'd never heard of. 
and I thought, well, it's a 30-storey high motel down the back straight at Flemington somewhere. I'll see that. Uh, can't miss Chiquita Lodge. So when I go out on the track, and this young girl said to me, she said, you better ride this horse properly. Well, I, I'll never forget because I drew 11, and Roy Higgins threw 10 on Gun Sin. Now, he was the only grey in the race. And I thought, I'll follow him. He's the only grey horse in the race. He's drawn alongside me. And wherever Roy goes, I'll be one step behind him because he's won a couple of these and he knows his way around here. Anyway, we get out on the track and I thought the only thing that could go wrong now, everything else had, is uh, if the clerk of the course joins in, if Johnny Patterson joins in on the grey horse, there's two in the race and who do I follow then? So anyway, we're sitting in the gate and I'll never forget this because I was sitting alongside Neville Voigt and Neville drew 12 and I looked over at Neville and he's on a horse called Hayburner. I said, what do you think, Nev? He said, not much. And we're nearly ready to go. And they're loading them. They go 1, 12, 2, 13, 3, 14. And this is how they load so that the one horse doesn't stand there too long. Anyway, we're standing there. And I said, uh, in the gate. And he, I said, uh, you got a chance? He said, no. I said, these are stable mates. He said, oh, yeah, yours had not got much chance either, I don't reckon. Well, that gave me a lot of confidence. And I was watching Roy in the stall alongside me. He came in at 10. And I thought, wherever you go, grey boy, I'm going to be right on your back, Dunsin. Well, the first time in his life, Gunsin missed a jump, and I was in front of him. And I thought, well, everything's going to plan now. Everything's gone from the time I got the ride on this horse, nothing's gone right. I'll be lucky to get round. And I was in front of Roy, and I thought, well, if Roy's going to follow me, he's in for a shock, because I've never been round here before. And I thought, I'm going to make my run Chiquita Lodge. Anyway, we get jumped out, and I get over, and I'm in front of Higgs, and I get over there and I have a good run down the straight the first time. You know, there's a lot of hustle and bustle and you try to get your spot before you go out the straight the first time. The two parts of the Melbourne Cup that are very hard to ride, the hardest parts are the first half mile and the last half because what they do and what the Americans call it, you hit the wall. Uh, Angel Cadero asked me when I went to America, to, did, did I hit the wall in the Melbourne Cup? And I thought, well, they don't have walls on tracks. Uh, and I said, what do you mean, Angel? He said, in the Kentucky Derby, he said, when we jump, we break the gate, they call it. We break the gate. He said, they, the roar is so loud, it's like hitting a wall. We go that down the straight, he said, and then we come around the next time, he said, and they're waiting for us again. And he said, so we hit the wall twice. So I said, yes, well, I hit the wall twice. First time and the second time. So anyway, we go out the straight and we're going down the back and I'm thinking, Chiquita Lodge, Chiquita Lodge, you know, and I'm going down and I'm thinking, get down past the mile and a quarter, down past the nine, past the eight, past the seven, past the six, and getting on to the thousand metres, I thought, you know, this 30-storey high motel, I thought, they couldn't have pulled it down last night. It's got to be here somewhere. <laughs> anyway, all of a sudden, and, you know, I really feel that this won the race for me because Higgs took off on Gunsend. Now, Roy had so many jockeys wanted to be as good as him, and he was one of the greatest jockeys. And when Roy took off, I thought, I'm going too. I reckon there was 12 other jockeys in the race had the same plan, follow Higgins. So Higgs actually helped me win the race uh, because I, I was inside of him and he was giving guns in a bit of room. As you know, he was a stallion. He liked a little bit of room. And Higgs was always giving me that bit of protection. Uh, it got a bit tougher when we straightened up. But from, from about the 1,000 to the home turn, he just gave me that bit of galloping room. And when we turned for home, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to run about 11th in the Melbourne Cup. I've beaten half of them home. I'm happy. And down 10th, 9th. And as we're getting down the straight, I'm thinking, well, I said, I'm 
starting to pass a few of these guys. And I knew the winning post was down the end there, but I didn't exactly know where. And I thought, it's down there somewhere. I said, I don't want it to come up too quick. So anyway, we got on and 50 metres from home and uh, Magnifique was in front. Yeah. I'll never forget either because there was something that went through my mind and she was the only one I thought, and the, the thing that went through my mind, Brian, was fall over you, bitch. Anyway, <laughs> she must have heard me because she slowed down and I, I won, went on and won the Melbourne Cup. Well, when I'm pulling up, a jockey come up behind me, hit me on the back and said, good luck to you, son, you've won the Melbourne Cup. I thought, oh my God, is this a dream? And it's a surreal feeling, and it's like a dream. And I thought, I've won the Melbourne Cup. I've never been here before. I don't know a soul. But when I got back, there was uh, a lot of people I knew that didn't know me going out. 103,000 people there that day, 103,000. You'd never see a crowd like that all year in Adelaide, let alone on one day. You're the toast of the nation, and it just it catapults you to... Uh, to a sort of a stage that you, you never dreamt you'd ever get to, and that's that's what you did. You know, it's interesting that you say that because Greg Miles made a wonderful call once when he when Mackaybe won her third Melbourne Cup. A champion becomes a legend. Now I never went in as a champion, but when you come out the other end, you can go in as I did, and you can come out the other end a legend because it makes you a legend. The Melbourne Cup is one race in the world that does make a legend of the horse, the jockey, the trainer. The owner, even the strap is a legend because now they're recognised, and which is great by the VRC to do that. It was something that I never dreamed of that could ever happen, but it changed my life completely. Uh, they call it the Loving Cup, the LC Cup. I call it the Life Changing Cup. That's my own name for it because it changed my life completely. I went from riding in South Australia to the next year I was in America, Canada, Asia, uh, in Africa, and I went up up through England. When it just opened doors, Brian, that like you was in a room with all these doors that are closed, and and the Melbourne Cup opens them. They open opportunities for jockeys. My, I've been very fortunate in my career as a jockey because even in the retirement years, those doors are still opening for me now. And you know, I often sit down and think, and I think to myself, what if I hadn't won a Melbourne Cup? What if I hadn't won a Melbourne Cup? Uh, but I did, and so it just—it was my my pathway, you know, to, to my my life and my career. On RSN 927, we're celebrating the history of the Melbourne Cup, Australia's greatest race. rode through the 70s and made Melbourne your home and you rode in the Cup uh, in 74, 75, 76, 77, 78, no ride in 79 and then all of a sudden 1980 and you looked as though you had a live chance on a horse called Baldal Hall, trained by Colin Hayes who, a bit like George Hanlon, had multiple runners that year. He did Brian and, and you know, funny thing about the Melbourne Cup because you know being involved in the media yourself. Uh, the year I won it on Piping Lane, my next ride was a horse called Our Pocket. And I came in after the race, and as the guys are all crowd around, you know, they want every jockey's opinion. And because when I won it on Piping Lane, I was, you know, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed sort of thing uh, with all the press. And I came in uh, uh, when I had my next ride in a couple of years later, and, and they said, uh, well, let's see, you won it two years ago, Piping Lane, and you ran last today. Uh, what happened? I said, I was unlucky. And they said, what do you mean unlucky? I said, if they'd have run it in Sydney, I said, I would have won it again today. 
because they go the other way round up there. They never put that in the paper, but uh, I said that to them because I thought, well, what am I, here's a jockey who wins it one year and a couple of years later he runs last. But, you know, Brian, there's a story behind, well, we all know Johnny Hawkes is a tough master. And Johnny Hawkes had, had a horse called Toll Treese, and she was a very good filly, a mare I used to ride her, and had a horse called um, Toll Hurst. Anyway, I, I went to Melbourne, and um, I was riding up between here and there, and he said to me, I want you to ride Tollhurst in the Cox Plate. And I said, no, John. I said, I can't. I said, I'm riding in Adelaide. And I said, no, I'm, uh, I've got a full book of rides here. He said, well, and you know how tough he is, Hawks. He said, he said if you don't ride Tollhurst in the Cox Plate, you won't ride Tolltrees in the Doncaster. And I thought, oh, I wanted to ride her because I'd won on her and she was very good. And... I said, okay, I'll go over and ride her in the Cox Plate. But I knew I'd won the Lynn Lithgow on him, 1,400, but he was never going to get 2,000. He was too too hard-going horse. He used to really get out and run. Anyway, as Kingston Town was in it and all of the good horses, and I thought, oh, you know, wait for age. He's, he's going to struggle. But I, I went there because I didn't want to lose the ride on Toll Treese. And when I got there, Colin Hayes had put me down for a horse in the in the, in the the uh, Mooney Valley Cup. Look, it was fate that that got me the ride on this horse really because what happened is we were walking around the mounting yard the horses were walking around the mounting yard before the before the uh, uh, Mooney Valley Cup and this mare that I was riding she stubbed her toe and moved the shoe back and the nail went into her hoof which wasn't serious it was just a little it hadn't gone right in but just nicked it and there was a little bit of blood there anyway the vet came over and he said um, we'll have to scratch it and Colin was there and he said um he said, oh, she doesn't seem as if she's lame. He said, no, she won't be lame. He said, it, 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 uh, it's only just a little pinprick. And and Colin said, well, why don't we let John take her to the barrier? And if he thinks she's sore going around, we'll pull her out. And the vet said, yeah, well, he spoke to the stewards. And they said, that's okay. So I got round to the barrier and I drew barrier one and I drew drawn the good gate there at the 25 and at the valley. And we went away and I was, I was running third on the fence all the way. And she dropped off and she ran last. And when I came in, Colin said, um, she's sore. I said, no, she's not sore. I said, she just wasn't good enough. And he said, uh, well, he said, uh, we'll see what happens with her when we get her home. If she's sore. I said, she won't be sore, CS. I said, she's okay. I said, she galloped okay, but she wasn't wasn't the grade. And I said, what was that horse you had that sat up outside the leader? Now, I'd never heard of Bill Ball. Never heard of him. Never heard his name. And he said, oh, it's a horse I got called um, Bill Ball for Robert Sangster. And I said, uh, he ran fourth, and I said, um, you got him in the Melbourne Cup? He said, uh, yeah, but you don't want to ride him. I said, why not? He said, uh, I want you to ride a horse called Gay Trebo. He's won five or six in Adelaide. He said, he goes good. And I said, no, I don't want to ride him. I said, I want to ride this horse, Beldale Ball. Something was telling me to ride this horse. And he said, look, he's a non-trier. He's a five-year-old stallion, non-trier. He said, Got ability, but a non-trier. He said he's only won the one, and you know. I said, oh well, I want to ride him. He said, look, in the morning, he said, oh, we'll work out your rides in the morning. I'll give you a ring in the morning. And so I went back to Adelaide, and next morning, one of the press guys rang up and said, what are you going to ride in the Melbourne Cup for for CS? I said, well, I'm going to ride Beldale Ball. They said, oh, CS said, look, Gay Trevo's the horse. I said, no. Nah. I said, I want to ride this horse. Anyway, Roy Higgins had ridden him in the Caulfield, in the um, Mooney Valley Cup. And I, I said to Higgs, when I went back to Melbourne a week later, I said to Higgs, I took a ride 
on a horse in the Melbourne Cup called Beldale Bull. You rode him in the Mooney Valley Cup. And he said, uh, yeah, non-trier. I said, oh, fair enough, I've taken the ride. It was too late then to, uh, you know, switch. That worked out that I rode him on the Saturday behind Bohemian Grove. And you know yourself, Brian, when you come back after a big race, everyone goes to the winner. Everyone goes to the winner. And everyone went to Bohemian Grove after he'd won. I think it was a Dalgetty or what, and I ran second. And everybody went to the winner. And Robert Sankster came over to me after it had died down a little bit there. He said, uh, what did you think, John? I said, um, you win the Melbourne Cup Tuesday. He said, yep. He said, Bohemian Grove. Very impressive today. I said, no. I said, this horse will beat Bohemian Grove. I said, Bohemian Grove will never beat this horse ever again. And he said, are you serious? I said, I am serious. And he said, okay. So anyway, I've declared it to Robert Sankster. We went upstairs and we drew barrier 24. And because the press guys had heard me declare it to Robert. And they, as I walked out, they said, you got a bit of pressure now, let's see. Barrier 24. And you've declared it to Robert Sankster. I said, I haven't got any pressure. I said, if I get beat, I said, I've got my excuse already. The barrier beat me. I said, so I, I went out there quite cool. And when I got in the mounting yard, Colin said to me, uh, you told me you win the Melbourne Cup on him. I said, yeah. I said, how do you want me to ride him? He said, you're riding him. He said, you told me you win on him. Just do it. And it was ironical because after the race at the presentation, it was, you know, how things can turn around, CS was out at the presentation and... Uh, and he said, well, you were right. I said, yeah, yeah. I said, C.S. Sissel's got ability when he wants to switch on. That day, I think, when I turned for home at the 600, I, I turned for home and, and I'll never forget the, the, the feeling of looking across at the crowd, which he shouldn't do. But I had a quick look behind. I was three in front, hadn't moved on him. He hadn't even taken a breath hardly. And I thought, I'm going to win my second Melbourne Cup. And this was at the top of the straight at Flemington. And you still got three furlongs to go, but he was, I hadn't even let him out. And CS was at the presentation, I'll never forget. And he'd wanted me to ride the other one. And at the presentation, Colin did it. He said, they said, you know, Colin, Beldale Ball winning the World Cup. He said, always knew he was a good horse. <laughs> so I said, I said to CS after, I said, hey, last week. He said, shh. <laughs> but that's racing, Brian, that's racing. Yeah, yeah. That was amazing. Let's go back to, uh, to 1980 and... JL, let's see, rolled the dice a long way from home. Uh, he took up the running, uh, probably about the 1,600 metre mark, and made them chase him all the way up the home straight. Hyperno in a pocket, and then came My Blue Denim with a fast run. But Belldale Ball's got the Melbourne Cup one. My Blue Denim coming from the clouds into second place. Belldale Ball stopping to a walk, but he's going to win. Belldale Ball, Johnny Letts beats My Blue Denim. Brian, the thoughts were with me, and, and, and this is what my exact thoughts were, when I went out straight, there was uh, Bohemian Grove Love Bandit in the lead with me, 1-1. One, one, and I said to CS, do you mind if I lead on this horse? He said, you ride him how you want to. And I said, OK. I said, he's a five-year-old stallion. I said, he's got blinkers. And if nothing attacks me, I want to lead on him. And he'll concentrate. But if something comes alongside him or he gets in the pack, I said, he's going to have his mind on other things. Will you? He said, do it. Do what you want to do on him. Anyway, I went out and, of course, as you say, I went to the front, going out the straight, and nothing attacked me. I had an easy run. The only time I got worried was when we went over the crossing at, at the 800 because he used to go off the track there, and he just sort of had a look at the track where he ran off. He used to go off the track, uh, the crossing, and I just give him a little dig and then grabbed him again, and then he started to concentrate again. And then he got back into that rhythm. And sometimes in a race when you're on a, on a good horse like that and, and you, can, you can feel like Huey Bowman with, with 
with Winks or or, or with uh, Luke Nolan with um, Black Caviar and, and Glenn Boss. There were three combinations that I've seen in my life that were 100% when they got together, and they were the three. But they seem to have a spot in a race where they're in a comfort zone, and Winks is always in a comfort zone. Maccabi Diva, if you look at her three Melbourne Cups, you'll find she was nearly in the same position every time. That was her comfort zone. That was her cocoon. She had radar. Yeah, she did. And, and Bossy told me, he said, it was if I went out in the race and they had that spot saved up for me. And, and, and of course, Black Caviar never, ever got herself into trouble in a race. I don't think I've ever seen her once have to check. She always found that spot. Um, and, and when he went to the lead, I th- nothing come along. I only had 49 kilos on my back, and, and I just was out there for a good stroll in the park with him. And, and, that's, and that's how I treated it, you know. I talked to him during the race, and I said, you know, wouldn't it be great if you won the Melbourne Cup, you're a five-year-old stallion, and Robert Sanks has got a lot of studs around the world. And I was talking to him like this during the race. I said, five-year-old stallion, your boss's, your owner's got studs all around the world. I said, I know what you'll be doing next year while I'm still riding here at Flemington. And you talk to him like that, you say silly things, you know, silly things to him. But he looked like he switched off, but he was still, he was still interested, but he switched off. Mm. And that was, that was what made me. And I don't think I've ever, in my life, Brian, I don't think I've ever felt, when I've turned for home in a race, ever felt so confident. And it's a silly thing to say because Melbourne Cups can be won and lost in the last 100 metres or 200 metres. But I felt so confident. And on that day, I felt like, I could sit on him and go round again. I'm just enjoying it that much, you know. That's fabulous. You won the cup for one of the biggest owners uh, in the world in Robert Sangster and Susan Sangster at the time. Uh, that was Beldale Ball. Your last ride in the cup was 1985. We're going to go for a break, and I want to come back and talk to you about riding banjo and the post-race interviews after the Melbourne Cup. It's the history of the Melbourne Cup on RSN. On RSN 927, we're celebrating the history of the Melbourne Cup. Australia's greatest race. Welcome back to the history of the Melbourne Cup right here on RSN. Pleasure to be talking with Johnny Letts this morning. Letsy, in 1993, you got the gig to be riding the pony, the first of the jockeys uh, after they've won the Melbourne Cup. It was for Channel 10 for memory. Back in 1993, you had retired from being a professional jockey. That was uh, a long innings of about 21 years, is that right? 21 years Banjo and I were out there. Um, Never had an issue. He was one of the most loved horses on a racetrack. People just loved him because he was was a little gentleman. Uh, He knew his job. And I often said to the guys at Channel 10, and then we went to 7, and I said, you know, if Banjo could talk... I wouldn't have a job because he knew his job. He he came along with Johnny Patterson who owns Banjo and his name is he, he's a stock horse and recently I was I was up in Scone and, and they showed me a book on Banjo and some of the photos I'd never seen. He won the Stock Horse of the Year award and they made a presentation to him in Scone, they made a presentation to him in in Melbourne and Melbourne Cup Week in the mounting yard. Uh, something that's never been done before. Uh, he won it through, I don't know what the qualifications were, but I think it was, might have been just a lot of public pressure that he deserved it. He was a registered stock horse. His name was Trawarrick Impulse. And when I first started riding him, 
Paddo, uh, I said to Paddo, what's the name of this pony? And like being a stock horse, everyone thought he was a retired racehorse, but he wasn't. He was a stock horse. Uh, and Paddo said, his name's Sawarik Impulse. I said, who named him? He said, well, I didn't. I said, well, I knew that because you wouldn't know how to spell it. Anyway, he said, uh, you call him what you want. I said, well, I'm going to call him Banjo after you, Banjo Patterson. And he said, you can call him what you like. He said, I call him a lot of names. I said, yeah, but we're not allowed to use them. And, and, and so I named him Banjo. Brian, that stuck with him all his career until the old fella died. Um, and they even made coasters out of him. They had pens with his name on, caps. And even, you know, something that it always stuck in my mind. You know the horse stalls where the horses get saddled up before they get in the race? Up the back of the stalls, they got these, like, in, highlighted in lights. And they roll over and they'll say, uh, say um, um, Black Caviar, uh, trainer Peter Moody, uh, rider Luke Nolan, and they had Banjo's name up in lights, and I never got a mention. <laughs> His just stayed there all the time. We had some wonderful times, Brian. I think the time, and you know they say horses, or they say a lot of animals, they say dumb animals, but look, Banjo wasn't a dumb animal. He was smart. He, he knew, like, you know Pete Donegan? He came out there one day and, and, and he bought out these um, apples for Banjo because he used to, and, and Francesca, they all bought him apples and always give him apples and they loved him. Everybody loved him. And that was when he was seven. And the same with ten, the boys there. And, and, and this day, I was just talking to Banjo. And I don't know whether he heard me or whether he, he knew what I was talking about. I said, but see that suit Pete Donegan's got on? I said, he'd hate to get a mark on that. I said, but I said, don't you dare. You, don't you dare ever blow your nose or anything while he's out. He'd give you that apple. Well, he must have heard me because Pete come up, he gave, he gave him the apple and he went, <laughs> and Pete Donegan, you know how, how oh, he, he said, what, a new suit. I said, anyway, he, he did that. But Brian, one of the other funny things about him and, and, and you know, took, we, we had nine races over the carnival and this day we had 10 races. Now they have a 10 race program on one of the carnivals. Now, Banjo would do nine races. He lived up the top of the straight, when you know where he lived, up the top of the straight at Flemington and down on Epsom Road and around the corner there. And that's his stable where he lives. Now, after the races, Paddo and, and, and Shane and, and his other son, Peter, and the boys all go back to Paddo's stable. They ride the horses through the car park. And young Ellen, the granddaughter, Paddo's granddaughter, she gets on him around the corner and she rides back around the corner of Banjo between the four clerks. And they, they, they go around the back streets and she comes back. She loves to ride Banjo after he's worked all day there. Anyway, this day, I'm, I'm back there and I never ever tied him up in a stall and he's got his bag of apples there and he, he just wanted anything that you could give him to eat. He'd chew the roses. He'd be, you know, the curator hated him, actually. Uh, Mick Goody said, I'll catch that horse doing that one day. I said, it's not him. And it was him. But anyway, <laughs> Mick said, I know it's him. He said, but I can't catch him. I said, you won't either. Uh, Anyway, we go down, and I, I get off him after the ninth, and this is the first time we had ten races. Now, I go back on him after race nine, back to the stalls, which I never, ever did. I walked out the stall, and I was watching a race in Adelaide, and it was I had my back to Banjo, and I was never tying him up. And I'm watching this race in Adelaide, and Paddo said to me, are you doing the last race, let's? Yeah, yeah, of course I am, and I'm still looking at the screen away from Banjo and the boys, and they're ready to go out to take the horses out for the next race, and, and I'm looking at the screen there, and... Anyway, he said, what about that horse of yours? Is he going with you? I said, yeah, of course he is. And I'm talking to the screen, not Paddo. And he said, well, you better go and get him. I said, what? And I turned around, and there he was, Banjo, saddled up, bridle everything. He was walking out the gate where they bring the horses in, and he's going home through the car park. So I had to run after him and catch him. 
and bring him back. Now, they tell me, and he knew he did nine races, but this day there was ten. And after nine, he said, well, that's it for me. I'm going home. So I had to run out and get him and bring him back. He wasn't that happy, but, 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 but he did it. He was, even though he wasn't happy, he did his work. He was great. Tell us that uh, famous story when uh, the two Japanese horses, Pop Rock and uh, yeah, Delta, Delta Blues. Blues. Delta Blues. The two of them hit the line, Ollie on Pop Rock, Pop Rock and the Japanese rider on Delta Blues. How did you get around that when Channel 7 crossed to you? Well, well, Brian, you know, as you know, I've got a, a little earplug in, in my ear, which I, I didn't see a race over the 21 years. I didn't see any of the races because I was always round behind the behind the uh, the finishing post for a couple of furlongs on, and I picked them up, and, and Bruce or, or Greg or you guys would always say to me, uh, so-and-so's won it, let's see, pick him up. Number three, green and white colours or whatever, or Jimmy Cassie might have been number one, might and power and, you know, things like that. Uh, and then I just go in and pick them up, and then I have to sort of. I, I was pretty lucky because I, I I had like a photographic memory of a race. I could always use it in the interviews because I was I was lucky in that way. I I, I would never ever be distracted while a race was on. I'd listen to it and I'd sort of try and picture the horses, and then I could get the interview right. You know. So anyway, a week or so before the Melbourne Cup, uh, the Caulfield Cup, Pop Rock and Delta Blues, good runs in the Caulfield Cup, and I thought well. This is going to be easy for the interviews. I never do. I never did any research because you don't know what's going to win it. So I don't do any research. So anyway, we get get there a week before the Melbourne Cup, and and Ollie's riding Pop Rock, and Nashville Willis riding Delta Blues, and I thought, oh well, I just have a look and see what the field is, and I see I Water, and I thought, I thought Nashville Willis was riding this horse. Anyway, they brought the Japanese jockey out, and I thought. I wonder if he can speak English. And all the boys in the studio knew that he couldn't, except me. Anyway, when, when, the, when the race is ready to come around, I thought, now, Gerard uh, Mosse knows how to speak. He's English. Uh, Frankie Dettori, all of the jocks, they're all English-speaking jockeys. And a Japanese horse couldn't possibly win it anyway. So anyway, they go there, and, and Greg knew, Greg Miles knew, and Greg called the race, and... Uh, and they get they get going, and when they went past me, and I was around at the sixteen hundred at the mile there, and I'd seen Pop Rock and Delta Blues alongside each other, and I thought, then in the the black, red, and gold, and they're going along the back, and I thought, oh, they're in a good spot, and I come on, Damien, um, and they get along, and they get down to about the hundred. Now, Greg, on the way to the barrier, I said to the boys, now does anyone up in the studio know any Japanese? And there's always one in the studio that does, and there was a guy in the back, and I said, yeah, I do, let's see, and I said. Uh, what is it? Because I could commute between there and the outside broadcast then. And he said, uh, Konnichiwa and Sayonara. I said, what does that mean? He said, hello and goodbye. I said, what order? He said, don't know. And I thought, well, this is going to be real good if the Japanese jockey wins it, but he won't. <coughs> so anyway, we get down with about 150 metres to go, 100 metres to go, and I'll never forget, Greg, forget Greg's call. And he knew that I couldn't speak Japanese. And he said, they get down with 100 metres to go. He said, and Japan's going to fight out the Melbourne Cup. He said, Pop Rock's gone up to join Delta Blues in the lead. He said, Ollie's gone for the stick on Pop Rock. He said, he's drawn level. He said, they hit the line. And I'm sitting around the back thinking, Damien, give him another extra one hit for me. And... You know, because I thought, this Japanese jockey, I don't know how I'm going to handle this. Anyway, they go over the line and Greg says, Delta Blues has won the Melbourne Cup. I thought, oh, no. And he comes around the corner and I, 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 I canter over to him because they didn't do it in, 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 in Japan like we do it, you know, with the interviews. And I went over to him and I said, uh, winner. And he looked at me and he said, winner. I said, happy? He said, happy. I said, 
uh, when you started to go, and he said, Super Horse, and he did, and that was it. That was the interview. And, you know, the next day for Channel 7, because I, I spoke to the boys from Channel 7, and I said, you know, that was the shortest interview I've ever done in my life. They said, you won't believe this. We've had 17 phone calls from different places want to see that again. I said, well, could you have it destroyed? Because I said, there were three things, you know, in, 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 in your life um, that, that you, some people go to the grave with. Bill Collins went with Kingston Town can't win. 39 Melbourne Cups, I think it was, Bill, wasn't it? Mm, yeah. He said, I'll be remembered for that one, but not the 39 Melbourne Cups. <laughs> Kingston Town can't win in the Cox Plate, and it won. Greg Miles, a champion, becomes a legend. And mine, a 10-second interview for the Melbourne Cup with the Japanese jockey. So there's three, and it runs in threes, Brian, doesn't it? What about 2002, media puzzle and the tragedy around Damien Oliver losing his brother days before the race? Um, how did you handle that? Brian, that was that was going to be a hard one for me, at, 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 because no research, but we were, we were all hoping Damien with it would turn out right for him to win the Melbourne Cup because Jason was at, at fatally injured that week. When he won the Melbourne Cup, the roar went up so loud. I knew what had won it because I was round the back, but I didn't see it. And he came around and and he was very emotional, which you can understand. He was very emotional, Damien. And I went over to him and I walked alongside him and I thought, now. I'm not going to rush in and say, do an interview. I just thought, I'll just go in and I'll just walk with him. And he was still going the same way that they race. All the others had turned around. And I said, how do you feel, mate? He said, um, he said, oh, I can't do an interview, Lessie. I said, Damien, I said, look, I said, I know it's real hard for you, mate. I said, it's a very sad week. Today's a very, very happy day. I said, all of those people over there are with you, over in the grandstand. There's 110,000 or more. I said, and the world was on that horse with you today. I said... And, you know, Jason will be that proud of you. I said, you wore his colours, his silks. I said, it's a happy day, a sad day, Damien. And all of a sudden, everything released. And we did the interview. And that was... But if I'd have went in, Brian, I think, with um, something, you know, coarse, more coarser than being being with him, than just helping him through that little bit. And I said, there's 120,000 of that waiting for you, Damien. I said, go for them. They're waiting for you. They were all on that horse with you. It was an amazing moment, and 2005, the uh, third of the Maccabi Divas, and you pull up alongside. History's just been made. You pull up yeah. alongside Glenn Boss. Glenn Boss, and that was that was one of my favourite interviews, Brian, because uh, I loved her. I loved Maccabi Divas. She's still my favourite horse of all time, uh, and I'll never forget the day I walked onto the track. I come out of the uh, Channel Seven studios, and Tony Sandick was walking past the owner. And I said to Tony, good luck today, Tony. I said, I think you'll win your third Melbourne Cup today. He said, uh, I don't own her anymore. I said, what? He said, I said, you haven't sold her. He said, no. He said, see that mob out there? He said, they own her. He said, I've lost ownership of her. He said, these people own her. And that was the crowd that day. I think it was nearly 120,000 that day. We had eight, 800 million viewers around the world in 32 countries with Channel 7 that day. And that was just an extraordinary day. They went over the line, and Bossy went on a bit further than he should have. And uh, and the stewards had said to me, look, tighten it up a little bit. You're taking a bit long with the interviews. And I cantered down, and I had to go right down to the 1400 to get the Bossy. And he had his arms around her neck. He was just kissing her on the back of the head. And, and I really feel if she'd have turned around and said, marry me, he would have said yes. And I went over to him and said, how are you, Bossy? He said, 
mate, he said, look, he said, I'm too emotional. I said, Glenn, I said, take your time. I said, we've got plenty of time. The stewards had told me to hurry it up, but I thought, I'm not going to spoil it for that. So I said, bossy, take your time. So we turned around and we walked back and I said, you know, Glenn, I said, this is something that we'll never see again. I said, you have just created history on one of the most popular horses ever to race. I said, and how are we going to start it off? And because Bossy being a showman said, well, it's your deal. Have a go, you know. Anyway, Bossy, we started talking just like we are now. And uh, it was a good interview with him. Uh, he was very emotional, as you can understand. And I think, Brian, one of the, the best days that I ever spent on a racetrack and I think you might agree with me. We see some horses that do things that are out of the ordinary. Now, Maccabi Diva, she walked back, and I, I did the interview with Bossy, and I said, well, Bossy, away you go. And he canned off, and like Banjo couldn't go as fast as Maccabi Diva. <laughs> and when I got back there, I was about 100 metres behind Maccabi Diva, and she was standing in front of the grandstand at Flemington. She had her ears pricked like a V, just had her ears up, and she was looking at the crowd, and I read her mind that day, and I reckon I came up behind her within 50 metres, and I read her mind that day. That was the greatest day that I'd ever spent on a racetrack. In her mind was, I'm pretty good, aren't I? <laughs> and I thought, you're the best. You're the best. And, you know, to me, she was the best. Terrific to spend time with you. Uh, what an amazing life you've had in racing, but particularly around the Melbourne Cup, and it still continues as you travel with the, the magnificent trophy. Uh, keep good health, JL. It's just fantastic to recall those wonderful tales. It's great to catch up with you again, Brian. And, you know, a lot of things that happen in Melbourne Cups, a lot of people don't see. And if we can bring just a little bit of enjoyment to people about the story we spoke about this morning. And, and, and that's the inside of the Melbourne Cup we're talking about now. People see the outside. But what we've spoke about this morning has been the inside, hasn't it? Yeah, without a doubt. The history of the Melbourne Cup. And no better person to talk about it than Johnny Letts.